Well, this morning, I am going to depart from my custom of reading from the New King James Version. Um, I have a couple of reasons for that this morning to help us. Um, so you may might either seek to follow along. Um, it'll, I'll be reading out of the Septuagint. And, or you can just listen. But I am in Jeremiah um, chapter... 31, the chapter divisions are different in the Septuagint, so, oh, wait a minute, Jeremiah 31, we're going to be reading the entire chapter in the Septuagint, this is Jeremiah chapter 38, um, in its entirety, you will find that much of it will be similar, there's only two or three places that the narrative is distinct, and that is going to help us tremendously later on. And so uh, please listen and read along, and uh, the verse divisions are the same um, between this and yours. Okay? So Jeremiah chapter 38, uh, beginning in verse 1, we'll read the entirety of this chapter. It says, At that time, says the Lord, I will be as God to the family of Israel, and they shall be as my people. Thus says the Lord, I found him alive in the desert with those slain by the sword. Go and do not destroy Israel. The Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I draw you in compassion. O virgin of Israel, I shall build you and you will be restored. You shall again take your tambourine and go forth with the assembly of those who rejoice. Moreover, plant a vineyard on the mountains of Samaria. Plant and praise, for it is a day of calling. When those who defend you on the mountains of Ephraim will say, Arise and go up to Zion to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord to Jacob, Rejoice and exult in the head of the nations. Make a proclamation and praise him. Say, The Lord saved his people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I'll bring them from the north and gather them from the ends of the earth to the feast of Passover. You shall beget a great multitude and they shall return here. They went forth with weeping, but I will gather them with consolation. I will cause them to lodge by the channels of waters in an upright way, and they will not be led astray. For I have become as a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, you nations. Proclaim it to the islands far distant and say, He who scattered Israel will also gather and protect him as one who feeds his flock. For the Lord redeemed Jacob. He redeemed him from the hand of those stronger than he. They shall come and be glad in the mountain of Zion. And they shall come to the goodness of the Lord, to the land of wheat, wine, and fruit, and of cattle and sheep. Their soul shall be like a fruitful tree, and they shall hunger no more. Then shall the virgins rejoice in the assembly of young men, and the old men shall rejoice. I will turn their mourning into joy, and I will make them glad. I will magnify and cheer with wine the soul of these priests. The sons of Levi, my people, shall be satisfied with my good things. Thus says the Lord, a voice of lamentation, weeping and mourning was heard in Ramah. Rachel does not wish to cease mourning deeply over her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, let your voice cease from its bitter weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your works, and they shall return from the land of their enemies. There shall be a, an abiding home for your children. I heard the news of Ephraim lamenting. You chastised me, and I was chastised. Like a calf, I was not taught. But turn me back, and I shall return. For you are the Lord my God. 
For after my captivity I repented, and after I knew I groaned because of the day of shame, and showed you that I bore the reproach of my youth. Ephraim is a beloved son and a child who is a delight to me, because my words are in him. I will surely remember him, therefore I hasten to help him. I will surely have mercy upon him, says the Lord. Rouse yourself, O Zion, and bring about vengeance. Be strong in your heart and turn by the way you went, O virgin of Israel. Return to your cities and mourn. How long, O dishonored daughter, will you turn away? For the Lord has created safety by a new planting. Men will travel about in security. Thus says the Lord, they will say this word in the land of Judah and its cities when I bring back the hosts of captives. Blessed is the Lord on his righteous and holy mountain. There shall be those who dwell in the cities of Judah and all its land, together with the farmer and the shepherd, shall go forth with his flock. For I have satiated every thirsty soul and filled every hungry soul. Therefore I awoke and beheld, and my, sheep, my sleep was pleasant to me. Therefore, behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will sow Israel and Judah with the seed of man and the seed of cattle. It shall come to pass as I watched over them to overthrow and afflict, so too I will watch over them to build and plant, says the Lord. In those days they shall not say the fathers ate sour grapes and the children's teeth were set on edge, but rather each shall die in his own sin, and the teeth of him who eats the sour grapes shall be set on edge. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I shall make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day I took hold of their hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not abide in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will surely put my laws into their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be as God to them, and they shall be as my people. Each shall not teach his neighbor. And each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their wrongdoings. I will no longer remember their sins. Though the sky should be raised to a greater height, says the Lord, and though the ground of the earth shall be sunk lower beneath, yet I would not reject the family of Israel, says the Lord, for all they have done. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun as a light by day, and the moon and the stars as a light by night, and who makes the sea roar so its waves make a crashing sound. The Lord Almighty is his name. If these laws cease from before me, says the Lord, the family of Israel shall also cease to be a nation before me forever. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when the city shall be built for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The measure of the city shall proceed in front of them as far as the hills of Gareb, and it shall be encircled round about by choice stones, all Hasaramoth, as far as the Kindron River. To the corner of the horse gate eastward shall be a sanctuary to the Lord. It shall not fail or be destroyed any more forever. This morning we are going to continue from last week looking at that day and the future time even to us. Uh, we have looked at the preface before God's blessing was God's purification last week. We saw how his plan for Israel was that they would still yet endure a difficult time. They would still have to endure the completion of his correction for them. And we saw that uh, even though in the midst of all of his promises... 
Um, he still wanted to purify them. That before he would establish his millennial kingdom, he needed to purge them of any interest in anything or anyone other than his son Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And so we looked at that facet of the end times, that there was going to be this time of intensity of God's wrath that is described in Jeremiah chapter 30 as the time of Jacob's trouble. That there was going to be a time when Jacob still had not turned to God, uh, and God, though, is going to be at work among the nations, and then Jacob will be, or Israel will be, betrayed. Uh, We know that from other passages by the man of sin, and we find them in hiding and being chased um, for three and a half years. And we find that all of this is in line with Jeremiah's description of this period of purification, of, of the uh, driving out of Israel's national psyche any hope and any expectation from the nations or from mankind that they are then ready to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, that they will be among the number who have been preached to by 144,000 of their own, who have had two witnesses who have been at work during this period of their trouble uh, to point them to the one. And finally, those that survive those years will be uh, ready to receive Jesus Christ as soon as he arrives. And we come into chapter 31, and we find this presentation of the ingathering of all Israel to God and the establishment of a new covenant that is premised not on the law of Moses but on the work of Jesus Christ. And so we, and we're going to talk about the relation between the church and future national Israel in the millennial kingdom um, because that's going to come into play and, and, and many of the early church fathers and, and modern commentators are struggle with that as, and uh, still to this day. So we want to address it. We're not going to neglect it. Uh, But we also want to consider and look at the role of of God in in drawing all of Israel together out of the nations and then prepping them for his blessing and then the actual covenant that he is going to establish with them. Before we look at all this, let's go, Lord, in prayer together this morning. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for the opportunity to be in your word and among your people and and lord we pray your spirit to be active agent this morning in our time together and we do submit it to you and pray that you might be at work in our hearts in our minds and then uh, should we surrender to that in our lives and we do pray that we might uh, be responsive today to your spirit's working and lord we do thank you for your word and we pray you might as you promised lead us into truth this hour, in Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, the chapter begins by calling us to the same time, and so we're in the same realm of time, not necessarily that they are simultaneous, but right in that same span of time, that same period, um, God is going to be doing some tremendous things around Israel. So we're talking about the latter days, and as a futuristic end times declarations. We're talking about way out there. So in the same time period of what we saw in chapter 30, this time of Jacob's trouble, some amazing things are going to be happening for Israel. And the amazing part for us is because it is happening. It's not going to happen. Some of these are happening, have happened. 
And so that is why, how, Pastor, why do you have such high degree of confidence that these are the last days? That we are in this period and we are drawing nigh to the exercise of God's anger toward, uh, in the time of Jacob's trouble, toward the nations and purifying um, his people is because of chapters like this. And so within this time frame, God says that all the families of Israel are going to be drawn to him. They're going to be his people. And remember, we are now going to talk, when he talks about all the families of Israel, he is really referencing the two divided kingdoms of Israel. And he's going to stipulate that here, because when you hear him talk about Ephraim, when you hear him talk about the Samaria, and we hear him talk about the northern tribes, um, well, that's the northern kingdom. And they went off into captivity under the Assyrian Empire, and uh, not under the Babylonians. So they have been gone for some time. Um, God didn't lose track of them. They aren't the lost ten tribes. God knows where they are. They're uh, around, and, and, and uh, they diminished quite significantly. Uh, but God has promised that when the end comes, they're going to multiply tremendously. And uh, we are seeing that, by the way, in our period. And we talked about that uh, a couple of weeks ago. We talked about the birth rates and how the birth rates of most nations are going down but the birth rate of Israel is going substantially up from um, study after study. keeps increasing. And so God's going to draw the northern tribes out of their uh, dispersion among the nations. And then he's also going to draw Judah. And so he's referring to really both sets, both the, of the divided kingdoms, and say, I'm going to unite you. And so all the families of Israel are going to be together. I'll be their God. They will be my people. And uh, these are the survivors. And he talks about those, that they have survived the sword, that they were, they were those that, that uh, the remnant, that's the term we use to refer to these survivors, those that got past the sword and the famine and the pestilence that have survived and have been out in the nations, and some of them for generations and generations and generations, thousands of years and we find that God says that at that time when, when most people groups under that condition would have just ceased to exist, you're going to multiply and I'm going to draw you together. And we are seeing that happening in our day. And so he says in verse 3, um, The Lord who has appeared of old to me saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness I have drawn you. And again, I will build you, and you shall be re rebuilt, O virgin, as you shall again be adorned with your tambourines, or go forth with dances of those who rejoice. Plant vines in the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and eat them as ordinary food. There shall be a day when the watchmen will cry on Mount Ephraim, Arise, and let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. And so we find this intermingling of things that happened before the time of Jacob's trouble, things that happened during the time of Jacob's trouble, things that happen at the end of it, and those that are going to happen in the millennial kingdom. And so uh, all of that period of time is called that day, that futuristic that uh, period of time where God becomes active again, so to speak, in Israel. And I want to make that very clear. We are not talking about the day of the church and there are those that would say, well, the church is the replacement of Israel, and all these promises extend toward the church now, that we are the fulfillment of this passage. Um, but it is very evident that God 
has a distinct plan for Israel. And I don't know how more clearly he can say this than to say that there's Ephraim, uh, that there's Jacob, that there's Israel, that there's Judah. Um, these are not terms that we would use to reference the church. Uh, we don't have those kinds of divisions. We have our own divisions, uh, but they're not certainly by tribe and by families. Um, and so we find that that by all these expressions, God has made it very clear that this is quite the Israeli thing that's going to happen at the end, uh, distinct from the church. Not that the church isn't uh, a facet of God's plan. We are. And we have enjoyed being the predominant aspect of God's working on earth for a couple thousand years. But that doesn't mean that that's all God can do. And remember, Paul tells us that we are the grafted-in branches, that we are grafted into Israel, that we are children of Israel by children of Abraham by faith. We are grafted in, but it doesn't imply that while he is that that the that the roots are gone. In fact, it implies quite the opposite that while God has cut off significant branches of Israel, um, He has preserved her at the core so that he might multiply her and draw her and build her up and bless her. And this is what we will see in the latter times, and this is what we are, going to see, we are seeing in these times. And so when you read the latter days in these kind of passages, you'll hear me use a reference, these days, because what they're describing is happening in these days. What you have just read of what God intended to do for Israel had not happened for millennia. Get the hold of that. For thousands of years, it has not happened. And in your lifetime, it is happening. For 2,000 years, Christians have read passages like this and scratched their heads because there was no Israel in the land. It was a bleak and barren place and devoid of people, largely. No one wanted to be there. No one enjoyed being there. Even in the days of Mark Twain, who visited there, said, who would ever want to be here? It was desolate, even that late in this era. But in these days, the last days, it has come to be a garden. It has come to be populated and fought over. It has come to a place that has one of the thriving birth rates of the world. It has come to a place where you can plant anything and it grows. It has the widest range of vegetation in it today than anywhere else on earth. They can grow everything from tropical things to things normally you think of as being in northern climes. And they are growing it. God is faithful. And there should be generating within us an a, a expectation. There should be generating within us a, a thrill of what's, what's about to happen and what is going on around us. And there should also be generating in us a, a, a realization that there is going to be some demands made of us during this period of time. That it is not all milk and honey. 
that there's going to be adversity and hardship in the midst of this, but the hand of God's blessing is evident, and he has made it plain that he will draw his people from wherever they are, and that has only been able to happen since the 1980s. That Jews from anywhere on the earth could and are going to Israel permanently. The 1980s. These days, my life, to have seen these things come. You visit the land of Israel today and you drive down south from, from Jericho and you drive along the Jordan where it empties into the Dead Sea and you say, this is just as desolate as it could be. And all of a sudden, there's a great, big, huge green patch right along the highway. Well, where did this come from? Most of the world's leading agricultural sciences are being developed in Israel. And it is green, and you can see it from space. The line that is the border between Israel and Egypt. The line that is the border between Israel and Lebanon. The line that is the border between Israel and Jordan. The line that is the border between Israel and Syria it is seen from the skies as one from green to brown. We are seeing this in our day. Those fights that we hear breaking out because of settlements cropping up in Israel are because the people of Israel are being multiplied. They are exploding population-wise, not only from immigration coming in, but from the birth rate within the nation and all of those settlements are homes that are filled with people. And God said they would come, they would be multiplied in the land, they would gather them from all the nations, from the north, from wherever. They are scattered. And we are seeing it in these days. And so God says that while there's going to be some corrections still to happen, there's still going to be some, some trials going on, um, the fact is because the last days have been initiated by this evidence that we should be singing with gladness for Jacob, it says in verse 7. And shout among the chief of the nations, proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. And he talks about their gathering together. And we see it, and we are called to rejoice. Yes, we recognize there's there's correction, there's still some judgment, some justice of God to be exercised that Israel is still blinded. They need to have the blinders forcefully removed, and that will happen not long from now. In a time of seemingly national disaster, in the midst of what they think is a time of peace and safety, But so God, having gathered them and brought bounty upon their land and multiplied their people, we find that while a great throng returns, it says in verse 8, they're gathered from the north, from the ends of the earth, the blind, the lame, the woman with child, the woman who labors with child together, a great throng shall return there. 
So this throng comes in. But then it says, verse 9, they shall come with weeping, and with supplications I'll lead them. I will cause them to walk by rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble, for I am the Lord, I am the Father of Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. There is a necessity of repentance in their gathering. And that we are only, we're really not seeing extensively, but we are beginning to see some evidence of their interest but it will be misplaced into the man of sin. It will be misplaced into a seven-year peace treaty with their neighboring nations, and, and they will be misplaced there, and that will have to be broken. And once broken, they will come with weeping then, and they'll be ready to receive the one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as their true Messiah, King, Father. That day is yet to come. But as God shows this early aspect of his blessing by multiplying them and by giving abundance to their agriculture, and we see that coming to pass, we can anticipate that he will also, because he is their father, bring them to repentance. And this is not a wicked thing to do. This is a loving thing to do. To bring your children to a point of repentance is one of the greatest, most blessed acts a parent does for their child. Not to punish them for their wrong, that is necessary as well, but to bring them to repentance. That is, that they change their heart and realize, I have done something wrong and I no longer want to do that anymore. And that is the spirit that any just punishment for sin seeks to bring about upon your children. A parent's punishment there is not just to uh, express our anger. It's not just to make them pay for it. It's to guide them and bring weeping and mourning that they might repent. And what God is doing here is bringing, as he has gathered them together and he has begun to bless them again, and to make them a nation, and to strengthen them. And um, then he realizes, well, if I'm going to be their father, I have to bring them to repentance. It's not good enough just to lavish them with gifts. I also have to make sure that they're walking in a way of righteousness. And in our families, in our society today, we believe that the expression of love for our children is to lavish them. And that that's the highest expression. Oh, you must really love your kids. You, you bought your daughter a, a, a sports car for a graduation. You must really love her and just lavish them with everything they could possibly want. But no, the highest expression of love for a parent is to lead them in righteousness. To bring them up. To recognize authority and to... Uh, understand it, that they might walk with the Lord, that they might know the truth, that they might honor God in their life. Do we lavish on them in the midst of that? Certainly. But we recognize that if I lavish things upon my children and do not do the hard work of correction, that I will ruin my children. I'll ruin them.
they'll begin to believe that they deserve it all. They don't have to work for any of it. That no matter how they behave or act, that they should expect it. And in fact, that's how too many parents are treating their children. And then it's no surprise when they become adults that they expect society to do the same toward them with no idea that they have responsibility to society to contribute, but only to take. So God here, like a loving father, is going to take his people. He begins by lavish, beginning, he begins to be lavish towards them. He begins to bless them and multiply them. And it's evident that he is one who loves them and still has a plan for them. But then he has to correct them to bring them repentance and they have to come before him weeping. And so we have this counterplay. You say, we're called to rejoice, 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 but there's also mourning and weeping involved here. And of course we see the description of, of Rachel weeping for her children in Ramah, being heard in Ramah. And we know that the New Testament uses this during the time period of Christ with uh, Herod's attack on the children of Bethlehem. And uh, it is applied there, um, but it's also applied all through the history of Israel. And we find Ephraim wanting to go after, or Benjamin wanting to go after, be restored. So we have this weeping and the recognition that what have we done? And even today in Israel, when I said that there is some evidence that they are preparing their hearts for this, while there's going to be a great deceit that's going to happen through the man of sin, there is evidence that Israel really doesn't want anything to do with Canaanite religion at all. They're just not wanting any of it. There is a sense that they have already, uh, to that degree, repented of that which led to their dispersion in the beginning. And so God talks about that, and he says, listen, um, I am going to care for you. And he talks about some of their works, that they are going to refrain from being involved in any of that activity that drove them into exile. And so we find them repentant, and as a repentant people, he calls them to great joy. You see that the hand that corrects is also the hand that loves and blesses. It loves and corrects, it loves and blessing. And it loves and correction, it loves and blessing. And these are not two different hands, these are the same hands. And hence he calls himself their father, and Israel, her virgin daughter, that is that they have now no longer had the disaster and purity of the Canaanite religions in their midst. They have gone back to being purified to the point that he can call them virgin daughters. Not that they have recognized Jesus as the Messiah yet. That'll happen after the correction period of the time of Jacob's trouble. But when they're gathered in the land, he refers to them anew as his virgin daughter. That they are there seeking the Lord. They're seeking in the law of Moses, in the old covenant, which is misplaced. But they are there seeking him in that covenant. And hence God calls them, O virgin daughter of Israel. Now that you have been purified of all of that Canaanite stuff that you were wrapped up into, and for Judah as well. And so this is the condition of the people. And we find it to be the case amongst us. 
They recognize they were chastened of the Lord. There's still some work to be done. And I think all of us know that, that when we discipline our kids for one thing, we know that we're not done. We see little steps of progress, and we know, praise the Lord, we got, we got something through to them. And we know our work isn't really done, though. We know there's still discipline to happen, and one day they'll figure it out, and then it'll be God's work to finish the job off completely uh, once they're out of our home and out from underneath our authority. But we see Israel responding, and they say, we've been chastened of the Lord. We don't want anything to do with that. And now Israel in the land, having the land turn green, having the people multiplied, we find a spirit among them. Yes, there's secular elements, but the the overwhelming spirit among them is we want to follow the law. We want to follow the old covenant. And they find their identity not in the Palestinians, not in in what's going on in, in, in their neighbors at all, but in their relationship with Jehovah. That is what they want to develop. And this, God says, will be the condition. And so God used the term, I remember. I haven't forgotten you. I have, which implies it has been a long, long time since he's really worked with Israel. So as we go down through here, um, verse 20, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he, please, is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. And we are told to set up signposts, make landmarks, set your heart toward the highway, the way which you went, turn back, O virgin Israel, turn back to these your cities. How long will you gad about, O you backsliding daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. And this is a passage that we're going to address here a little bit of a woman encompassing a man. Um, so the, the pathway back to Israel, uh, that we are to reestablish some things. And one of the powerful things going on in Israel uh, during Um, Our lifetime, my lifetime, has been the archaeological evidences of, that have been brought forth. And uh, I didn't really significantly appreciate that until I talked to one gentleman when we were touring Israel. And he said, it's been 20 years since I've been here. He says, I can't believe the change. And now it's been, how long since we were there? Huh? Huh? 12 years? This is 2016, right? It's been a long, long, too long. It's been too long, people. So seven years, seven years, sorry. It just feels like 12. Um, and he said, I, I came and there was some evidence, there were some ruins, but he says the ruins now, the cities now, the, the archaeological sites you can visit now um, are just Phenomenal. He says, they're they're tenfold what they were last time I was in Israel. All the old places are found. They're identified. There's more and more and more and more archaeological evidence going on. Uh, They are excavating, when we were there seven years ago, the city of David and the very very palace area. And we we watched that happen. And, And we see all of this going on, the old landmarks 
all the ancient places. The, and he says, set those up. Identify your, recognize this is your place. And then the, the aspect of why are you out there wandering around? This is your home. And when we get to chapter uh, 31, verse 22, um, every commentator I, I, that I have, anyway, says, well, this is the most, the most difficult verse in all of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, 22. And, uh, and some have tried to reference it to the virgin birth. Some have had referenced it to other aspects that uh, even the weak women will be able to defend the men. Uh, it's been... And no position has a majority. None. And most of the balanced commentators I have will not take a position. They'll just say what everyone else says, and who knows? That's their conclusion. Who knows what it means? Whenever I come to passage like that, I, I, I really struggle, because I, I don't believe in those who knows. God gives us information so that we do know. And so, since our recent study in the Bible, I said, I'm going to go see what the Septuagint has to say in verse 22. The Septuagint, if you recall, is built off of an older Hebrew, translated to Greek, that's now been translated to English. So we're um, bypassing the Masoretic text, which was made about 1000 A.D., and we're going to a B.C. Hebrew, translated before Christ into Greek, and now brought to us in English. And here's what verse 22 reads. In, um, again, it's verse, chapter 38 in the, in the Septuagint, but I want to read verse 22. How long, O dishonored daughter, will you turn away? For the Lord has created safety by a new planting. Men will travel about in security. The statement is, why are you out there among the nations? The safest place for you and the most supplied place for you is Israel. This is the place where you can walk about safely. This is the place where God has revived the planting. He is the one that has created this place for you. This is your land. And so stop being interested in walking among the nations and in continuing to be in dispersion. And it's almost a call for Israel that if you are really interested in your relationship with me, you're going to have to get back to the land. It is the place where ultimately you will be safe. There's going to be a time of purification. There's going to be some correction still to happen there. Uh, there's going to be some trouble, no doubt. But this is still the place that God created for you. And so don't be wandering around among the nations. Get yourself to Israel. Get yourself to the land. And the attitude and spirit that we have seen in the last 15 years, 20 years nationally among those that we don't even think of as Jewish people coming out of weird places like northern India and Ethiopia and, and China and places like that. It says, well, we're Jewish. What were you doing there? Well, we want to go home. And we all know about the Russian Jews and their migration into Israel. But we find that, that this spirit has come upon the, the Israeli people all over the world that, why am I wandering out of here? I want to go home. I want to go to the land God created for us. And he has planted it there. And he is going to make us secure there. 
Now, is there security in the seven-year treaty? No, they think it is, but it won't be. Their security ultimately is after the time of correction in the millennial kingdom where Jesus is their Lord and King. And so he promises all of this here. And lest you think it's just for Israel, it's also for Judah. And he gathers her as well. And uh, again, verse, I want to, I'm jumping a little bit. I don't have time to go through all these verses. But uh, verse 27 says, Behold, the days are coming that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. So we have the agriculture, we have the turning green, we also have all this, all this uh, livestock coming in. We have the multiplication of men, not only for the northern tribes, but also for Judah. Same promises. You're going to have cattle, you're going to have sheep, you're gonna, you're, it's just going to be a land of bounty. And during this time, and breaking forth into the millennial kingdom will be a new covenant. And what's fascinating here, God gives a little promise that I want to touch on very quickly. Um, in verse 28, it says, It shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to throw down, destroy, to afflict, so I will watch over them to build and plant. In those days they shall say no more, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. And this is referring to the history of Israel. If you recall, uh, we had a, a series of evil kings who did great wickedness before the Lord, and yet somehow uh, the demise of Israel didn't happen in their day. Um, and we see that under Hezekiah, under Josiah, um, there was some revival going on, so God delays his judgment. And the delay ends up having, in fact, for Hezekiah, it's told specifically, nothing's going to happen while you're king, but your children and grandchildren are going to get it. And Hezekiah's response was, well, praise the Lord! <laughs> so you see, the idea of not thinking about the next generation's world isn't new. Um, for Hezekiah, it's like, well, thank God, you know, we're going to be secure while I'm king. Um, my Kids probably don't deserve it anyway. So, um, and so the idea is, here's the fathers committed the sin. They ate the sour grapes. They committed the trespass. But it wasn't for generations until the judgment came. And God said, it's not going to be like that in the future. I'm not going to punish you for your father's sin. A man is going to suffer for his own sin. So if you sin, you're going to pay the price, not your children or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren. This is going to be a time when there is a singular relationship between a person and his God that is not going to be traced generationally. It's not going to be traced um, through the Levitical priesthood necessarily. It's going to be a fact that if you sin, you pay for it. You will die. You're, it's going to be, you, you eat the sour grapes, you do the wrong, your teeth are going to fall out. You're going to suffer the consequences, not your children and grandchildren. That format is going to be gone. Everyone's going to die for their own iniquity. But a day is coming, verse 31, the days are coming where there'll be a new house, a new covenant, I'm sorry, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, both. 
And it is completely different, verse 32 says, from the covenant of Moses. Remember that right now, Israel is interested in that covenant. And God says, no, at the end of your time, Jacob's trouble, you'll recognize that that covenant is faulty and weak and that you misplaced your trust in the man of sin in that treaty. And now they have been broken, they have been fully corrected, and they are ready to receive from God a new covenant. And that covenant we are already in. But not the house of Israel and not the house of Judah. They haven't entered into that yet, but we are enjoying it. It is a covenant based upon and built upon the work of Jesus Christ. And so we who are grafted in will be able to enjoy it, but Israel can be easily regrafted in as well. They can be sprouted up, and that's what happens. And so he describes a covenant, and this is one of the reasons why there's so much confusion that people say, well, the church is Israel. Uh, we replace Israel because this is our covenant. And it is. It is the church's covenant. We have this relationship with God where we have the Holy Spirit within us that will entune us to his truth so that we might know the Lord. And uh, you might say, well, we still come to church and you still teach us and we still have to go tell people to know the Lord. Um, that is true because we haven't seen the final corrections of, that are talked about. This is for Israel in the future. This is a mass national conversion and an and a implementation of the covenant through Jesus Christ that is not shared by the church. Ours is on an individual basis. You must choose. At that point, Israel as a nation chooses. Gathering together all Israel and all Judah. Remember, they've already been corrected. They've already been purified. And so now here are the survivors. And they're ready. They don't want anything to do with anyone else. They want the one true and living God. And he shows up as Jesus Christ. They already saw him in the clouds seven years earlier. Now he arrives with his armies. Armageddon has occurred. And the nations are destroyed. And Israel says, Jesus is our God. And this covenant is established based not upon the law of Moses, but on the work of Jesus Christ. And here's the covenant. It says, um, my law is going to be in your minds. It's going to be in your hearts. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. You're not going to need to teach your neighbor. You're not going to teach your brother. You're not going to have to invite people to know the Lord because they're all going to know me. He'll be hidden from no one. And Israel will come to God in this massive sense. And again, it begins by God blessing their land and multiplying their people. He has to correct them. He has to purify them. He gives them time of Jacob's trouble. And now they are weeping, mourning, ready to repent. They have repented. And they are hiding, waiting for his coming. And as soon as he comes, this covenant is established. And Israel is now kingdom of God, reestablished in Jerusalem. So what does the chapter end? The chapter ends with where is Jesus? He is on his holy mountain. And it says it's going to be revived. And this is much bigger than the temple area today. It describes it at the end of this, that God is going to establish his covenant forever and ever, and uh, that, he, that it's, it's going to last as long as the earth lasts. As, as long as there is uh, still a heaven and earth and as long as the forces of nature are going on, this covenant will be established. Where 
will God be? Where will Jesus be? Well, you're going to take the surveyor line, verse 38. The city will be built for the Lord. From the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, we just described, to most of us none of this means anything, all these names. He's just described the northernmost two corners of Jerusalem, northeast and northwest. And said all the way from that far corner to that far corner, all the way down the Kidron Valley, which is over, which we often think of as being part of the Temple Mount, that big valley where the Golden Gate sits, um, that they the Muslims blocked in to try to keep Jesus from coming back. <laughs> Figure that one out. Um, all the way along to the valley, it's an enormous area. It's pretty much almost the whole city, and a little extra from that. And he says that's going to be holy to the Lord. That is the place that um, uh, is going to be never again plucked up or thrown down anymore forever. This is his place of possession, that he is going to be present there. He is going to be the king. Israel will be his people. He'll be their God, and they will reign there as long as the earth exists. thousand years, we are told later on. And so we have here in two chapters of Jeremiah this carefully laid out exactly what God's plan is for Israel in the latter days. And we can see it happening in these days. And it makes you almost want to catch your breath. (gasps) What's going to happen? And you should. We should have such an expectation, such an anticipation of what is happening around us these days, and shame on us for getting myopic and just looking in one in our little lives and not being aware of what's going on in Israel, being aware of what's going on among the nations, seeing God's hand at work, and being ignorant of what the Bible teaches about these days, which are the last days. Before we get... called on. For while you're just repeating stuff that people have said for hundreds of years and nothing's happened, um, they had to spiritualize all these prophecies. They had to. They wanted Jesus to come in their lifetimes too. And so they took these prophecies and said, well, God can't literally mean that. And they spiritualized them over and over and over again. I'm not spiritualizing anything here. I'm taking it at its absolute face value. This is what God said he would do. And I'm telling you, he is doing it now and has been for about 30 years. This is the generation that will see the Lord. For it has come. And we wait in expectation. And so, brethren, have our hope and our longing, have our lives in accordance with that. That while we build homes, plant gardens, have children, have grandchildren, that all along in that work that we recognize that in those things we do not hope, but we do. Knowing that our hope is for another place that will soon come. Soon come. 
And that as we involve ourselves in other activity, when Christ comes, will he find us faithful in them for his glory and not our own. I do not build a house for my own applause. I build it as an instrument to, to raise my family, to honor and glorify God, and to reach my neighbors for Christ. That as I plant my garden, it is about sustaining life to his coming, that we might be preserved that there might be faith on the earth on his arrival, that as I have children and grandchildren, that I am communicating that I am going to be faithful, that the author of life desires us to bring forth life. Will he find us faithful, or will he find us sitting on our hands, saying kumbaya up in the mountain, and doing nothing for his kingdom, doing nothing for those around us, and not even bringing forth our own children to praise his name. And so our expectation is not one of foolishness, but is one of faithfulness. Are we using his resources to their fullest potential up to the very moment he comes? Will he find us faithful? And just as we talk about the physical realm, Oh, that we would be diligent stewards in the spiritual realm with his gospel. That we might bring forth new life around us. That we might build spiritual houses where the Spirit of God might take residence in those bodies of flesh. That we might be planting spiritual gardens to nourish and strengthen so that people might endure when the time of trouble comes to purify, that we might stand fast. So yes, we are involved in both and in all of it. And we are called. And when the master comes, that we are in the fields working and not sitting idle at home, wishing our days away for his coming. And so I challenge you to be faithful. God is faithful. And you are seeing him do what he had promised to do 3,000 years ago. You are seeing him do it on the earth, in your sight, now. Wow. Rejoice. Get your tambourines out and start dancing. I know it's not a very Baptist thing to say, but it's true. Rejoice. Don't be sullen. It is time for rejoicing. There is still a place for repentance, for mourning, those kinds of tears for your sin. But when we see God's hand, we have got to rejoice and say, Woohoo! It's happening. It is happening. And it will surely all come to pass. As long as the earth, the tide, and the stars keep moving, so it will happen for sure. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us and thank you for your word and for its promises. And we are in a condition of enormous blessing to be standing at this end of your plan and seeing such words come into being around us, before us, that we might know you are the Lord and you are faithful and you are at work and you are stirring 
for those days, that day. And so, Lord, help us to be even more diligent to exercise ourselves for your glory in all the work that needs to be done to sustain and bring forth life physically, but also to bring forth spiritual life among those around us, to call them, to rescue them, and then, Lord, to sustain them in your truth, to plant them in the truth of your word. Lord, our prayer is you might find us faithful to your coming. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.